0: Good afternoon and welcome to this week's edition of Novara, brought to you by Novara Media and broadcast live on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm James Butler and joining me in the studio this week is Dan Trilling, who is editor of The New Humanist, author of a book on the BMP and the far right in Britain, and whose recent work has concentrated on refugees, migrations and the camps and detention centres that are part of the border regime. And that's what we'll be talking about today. And those listening can join in the discussion on the hashtag Novara FM. Dan, welcome. and In fact, welcome back to the show. Thank Thank you. Uh, There is, in a sense, never a bad time to discuss this, uh, but it seems particularly appropriate at the moment Uh, Adaron Pata, an asylum seeker and organiser who survived Yarlswood, one of the detention centres in Britain, uh, and who organised against the brutality of the conditions there, is currently contesting an asylum decision via judicial review. The Home Office barrister has decided in an act of gross and antiquated homophobia that the fact that she has children means she isn't a lesbian and can therefore be deported. It's no exaggeration to say her life is at risk if she is deported, and I urge listeners of the show to make as much social media noise about the case as is possible prior to the ruling. This story is like many others. Some listeners will know that my political background is in LGBT asylum and in refugee claims, and Adoronke's story is one that is repeated again and again. Despite official claims to have reformed the rules on such asylum claims, the reality is that LGBT people are deported back to violence and death by a government that does not care about them and wants them gone because they are not British. We have a very long way to go before we can say we are doing enough to prevent this and to stop this happening. But that's not all that's happened this week. Alongside TV exposés of uh, a detention centre in Britain on Monday, uh, the all-party par- all parliamentary group, a bit of a tongue twister, on refugees published the report of their six-month-long inquiry into detention in the UK. And it's unusually forceful in several areas, especially on medical care, on victims of torture, and time limits to detention. Uh, in essence, coming as close as possible to recommending the abolition of the current system of detention um, without explicitly doing so uh, they certainly recommend the key recommendation uh, is conforming with uh, EU limits uh, or or nominal EU limits on length of detention. Um, I'd recommend anyone interested in going deeper than just the report um, to read the transcripts and transcripts of oral evidence given in three sessions uh, before the committee uh, especially from current and former detainees and some of it makes very difficult harrowing reading. Um, so I guess uh, one of the, 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 the best places to begin, I think, is to talk uh, perhaps a little uh, about the myths about refugees and asylum claims um, in, in terms of sort of... So, so to say that most refugees fleeing conflict and persecution tend to end up, uh, don't they, in neighbouring countries really rather than making the cross into Europe? Um, yes, that's absolutely true. Um, last year was... Um <clears throat>
1: I think saw more people displaced by conflicts around the world than any year since 1945. Um, but something like 80% of those displaced people are hosted by developing countries. Um, so you know, if you take the Syria um, Civil War as an example, the vast majority of refugees who've left Syria are currently living in Syria's neighbours, uh, Lebanon, Jordan, and Turkey, and in some cases, Iraq, where people have felt that Iraq, despite the chaos there, is still safer than Syria. Um, The other trend it's worth pointing out there is that the proportion of refugees being hosted in developing countries has actually grown in the last decade. So about a decade ago, it was something like 76% uh, were in developing countries and the rest in in wealthy parts of the world. And now it's somewhere in the mid-80s. So it suggests a trend where, for whatever reason, Um, rich parts of the world North America, Australia um, and Europe are hosting proportionally fewer refugees Mm -hmm. what I think is interesting about that is it's a time when Border regimes in in those parts of the world have have become increasingly militarised and fears about the threats posed by waves of refugees or undocumented migrants or asylum seekers have been been very prominent in political discourse, not only in Britain, but, but in many other similar countries as well.
0: Mm. So, I mean, even and you know, obviously, listeners will be aware of how much this is. This is part of the discourse, the political discourse in, in the UK at the moment. Uh, you know, the, the asylum seekers, of course, the noire of um, both nominally left and right wing parties mm. uh, in Parliament uh, and indeed outside of it. Uh, what struck me actually was, you know, in terms of, and it's a thing that I think is sometimes difficult to remember, is, is that, you know, in, in terms of the, the latest figures in in Europe, you know, applications for asylum, uh, you know, Britain is pretty far down the list, actually, of of, of, of both uh, claims and certainly of, um, of of accepted claims.
1: Yes, that's true. I mean, if you take to think about how these issues are rendered in in discourse in the UK. Take the example of um, how Calais was treated by the media last year, um, when we saw many stories that that focused on the growth in numbers of destitute migrants who were sleeping rough in Calais as they tried to sneak into the UK, um, underneath or inside lorries that were passing through the port. Mm -hmm. Um, And the impression that was um, given in a range of media and endorsed by by various different politicians was that that was because... um, you know migrants were flocking to britain for its gener- generous welfare system and you know it almost was went without saying of course they want to come to the uk rather than other european mm. countries because mm-hmm. we're such a soft touch was the you know that was the subtext um but it's not true i mean as a proportionally yeah if you if if you look at league tables of um where refugees go to claim asylum in europe britain comes around mid table mm. um Far more popular as destinations are Germany, Sweden, other Scandinavian
0: countries, and <laughs> perhaps not uh, surprisingly, <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, the, there's there's a particular case here. I think in in, in terms of um, uh, the the call that went out from um, uh, the UN High Commission uh, to, for for countries to take Syrian refugees, refugees from from the conflict in Syria. Um, the uh, so the, the call was for people to, for countries to take on an additional hundred thousand. Uh, Syrian refugees uh, the UK seems it has taken about 50 not 50,000 50, 000, 50. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you know in, in terms of the numbers here it's you know obviously there's some sort of uh, uh, political need um, to, to 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 make this sound much much bigger than it is yeah um, I mean
1: the way that I sort of characterise it uh, to just to help myself understand what's going on is that yeah there is a global refugee crisis um but the way that it's affecting Britain and uh, Europe more generally is if you imagine, you know, you imagine dropping a stone into a pond and there's some, you know, there's a splash and then the ripples ripple outwards mm-hmm. and um, we're right at the edge. We're getting one of those, mm-hmm. you know, little after effects. It's a, it's a tiny ripple compared to what's going on in, in, in other parts of the world. Yet it seems to be causing a bigger political crisis here than than in countries um, that have accepted many more refugees or refugees. Or rather, perhaps a different kind of political crisis, because mm-hmm. I think there are other dynamics at work in, say, Turkey or Lebanon or Jordan or parts of Africa yeah. where there have been large numbers of displaced people.
0: the um, The number of detention centres in the UK and, you know, the, and, and particularly the conditions in them, um, you know, we, we've seen this week, and um, uh, uh, you know, listeners can can check uh, various news sites, Channel Four. Um, ran Ran an expose earlier this week um, there's there 's uh, also some some really you know uh, quite astonishing secret filming of of bases where i am quite happy to admit you know that if people were to see these conditions you know uh, um, the government worries that there would be uh, uh, i 'd also just say people should check out the work that corporate watch
1: have done on this on this subject um, yeah which um you know channel 4 have done some excellent work bringing this to to prominence um but corporate watch have um not only done their own secret filming and um investigations but have spent a lot of time documenting um you know failures in legal procedures or or, or particular abuses that have been going on in detention centers
0: yeah i mean this is in fact i guess a a, a decent point to make right which is that that there is there's an entire regime of which the detention centres are just a part, just a you know a particular uh, a particular instantiation. It's it's kind of you know it's in some sense it's very difficult to to grasp the actual totality of the border regime, um, both around and across Europe, right? Um, so so the detention centres here and uh, and their connection to detention centres elsewhere, um, but also uh, you know what you know what strikes me is is the uh, the ways in which you know and just talking from sort of personal experience here, the ways in which access um, to proper representation, legal recourse, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, even resources that are comprehensible um, to people making asylum claims, uh, they, you know, it's just not there. And, you know, I think anyone who works in this world will, will have stories of you know, just absolute bureaucratic uh, 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 shutdown. Uh, and And so, you know i wonder and it, it, you know it's it's it was striking that it would come from of all people sarah tether uh who is who has who's the chair of the the all par- all all party parliamentary group um a p p g um uh, on refugees to to say that um you know what she worries about with uh uh, exposes of the of the kind that happened earlier this week um, was that uh, they, that politicians solve these problems by merely tinkering at the edges, firing a few people, changing a service provider when in fact um, it, it needs whole scale review and reform. Um, which, which, from uh, from a liberal democrat MP and quite a reactionary one, was was a bit of a surprise. Um, it's not an opinion that that, that is widely shared across uh, across Parliament. I mean, it has to be said. But but does it does it seem to you that there is political progress being made here? Um, yes. Well, I mean, it's
1: perhaps easier to make bold statements when you know you're not going to be in parliament after the next general election but um that doesn't discount the work that has been done whatsoever and it's it's very good that people are saying these things um i think the the broader point about detention about immigration detention both in britain and around europe is that um According to the various international agreements and standards uh, that are intended to protect the human rights of refugees, detention is supposed to only be used in a very limited way and it's only supposed to be used when states have decided that they either somebody has just arrived and states need to very briefly assess who they are, or that states have decided that this person does not have the right to stay within the borders of that country and they're being deported immediately prior uh, being detained immediately prior to being deported. Uh, what we've seen in Europe, and Britain has been the pioneer of this, is the growth of what's called administrative detention. And that's where, um, or, or rather, detention for administrative convenience is the particular particular jargon that's used. And that's where you keep somebody locked up for the entire um, duration of the process where they come, you know, they arrive and say they want to claim asylum, they're then detained, and people are kept there as long as it takes to process the claim and decide whether or not they have the right to um, stay in the country. Um, Now, what investigations like the ones we, we saw in the last week do is that they're very good at exposing the abuses that happen within a system where people are completely at the mercy of a a prison regime, essentially. Um, And I think in terms of priorities, it's right that the worst abuses are exposed and and tackled first and and that the most fuss is made about them. But what I think um, Sarah Tether and others are trying to get at is that we mustn't lose sight of the fact that the entire system itself is abusive. Um, And the reason why it's abusive is because... um, It's clearly, it's a restriction on people's liberty, Um, you know, the, in theory, the, you know, the legal system in this country is based on a principle that you shouldn't be imprisoned unless you've committed a crime and been charged with it and convicted of it and the rest and that people in immigration detention are not being charged with crimes, but they're being locked up for, you know, in worst case scenarios, up to three years at a time without knowing, you know, when or by which process they will be released. But there's something else going on there as well, I think, which is that it's not just being deprived of a kind of individual liberty that is is abusive. It's the fact that they're being deliberately um, segregated from general society and they're being deliberately prevented from taking part in civil and political life. And I think that's quite a... Um, it's quite a calculated move. Um, One of the reasons that Britain massively expanded its detention system in the early 2000s was that um, they had already tried a system of dispersal where people who claimed asylum were not allowed to just settle in whichever big city they they felt like, but that they were sent to coastal towns like Dover, um, which um, that was abandoned because, it co- you know, there, wasn't, there weren't the resources to support those people there and it caused massive racist backlash from local press and then the national press. Um, but one of the reasons why it's not convenient to have asylum seekers settle in a large city is because they have access to, you know, resource networks and networks from people from their own community who can tell them, okay, this is how you settle in here, this is how you go and get legal advice, this is how you learn the language so that you can, you know, counter what the legal system is trying mm-hmm. to do to you. And, that, you know, there's, there's all of these things that can support people and make it more likely that their claim for asylum will be successful. Um, detention is another sort of more extreme step in on, on the way to, to completely restricting that.
0: It's, I mean, just to, to give... Uh, uh Listen to some dimension of of the the number of people in detention the the twenty thirteen figures there thirty thousand um people detained in immigration detention centers including including children um about half of them were were seeking asylum um and and the the detention centres are either former prisons or built specifically to 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 prison standards so it's no, you know category B in, in fact i think um and uh, which is you know not pleasant um so so uh, you know it's important to point out that it's not an exaggeration to say that these are, are you know uh, prisons in all but name um so yeah i mean this it was interesting to me that the that, that, um the the, you know, you, you were talking about the state's need to uh, try and figure out, you know, the status of people or, uh, you know, isolate them in, in, before making a decision because this is very much, a, a, you know, and the theoretical issues at play here always sort of involve uh, the state and its relations sort of beyond itself, right, and its yeah. implications or responsibilities elsewhere. And I guess one of the the conflicts here is between... Uh, international pressure and domestic pressure so uh, in the case of the uk that's um you know pressure of a relatively um racist domestic regime um and certainly a reactionary trend within popular political culture um which means that in terms of its obligations or indeed uh you know whether moral or political uh you know the uk is often in dereliction of them um on the other hand, you have uh moves in uh in Greece and I, I know you've been uh reporting mm. from Greece recently. Uh you have moves in Greece to 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 abolish the detention centres as they stand, um, which is likely to run into conflict, is it not, with uh pressures from uh other members of the EU, uh and in particular sort of Germany, Austria, um that sort of central uh, central bloc.
1: Yes. Um perhaps before we discuss that specifically, I should just say a bit about the the work that I've been doing over the last year and a half, which is that I've been trying to travel to different bits of Europe and, and um, report on the experiences of refugees as they encounter the various border systems. But this was really to to help me better understand um, something that that didn't seem clear at the outset, which was that clearly we know that you know, nation states have borders that they, you know, national governments seek to remain in control of and that they uh, want to be able to say who has the right and doesn't have the right to to live within those borders. But, um, you know, Britain is also part of the European Union and the European Union has its own external borders um, where internally um for the last 20 years or so we've had this um you know attempt at a, a version of a of a an internal open border system which is you know most most eu states are part of the schengen zone uh, britain isn't but in practice its citizens can travel back and forth as much as they like as well um, so that immediately sort of raises the question, the minute the borders come down internally that raises the question of well, what's at the edges and, and who is in charge of those borders because um, say for example the border of Greece with Turkey well that's the Greek border but it's now a border of the European uh, Union and it's, it means it's also the the edge of, of, of something um, that's, that's bigger than a nation state um, and you know what i wanted to know is well how much of what is happening there you know when detention centers are built in greece or when fences go up there or um you know in spanish colonies in morocco how much is that just those states reacting to a specific pressure themselves and how much is that a dynamic that that tells us something about europe in general um what might be useful, I thought, because because my work is really grounded in sort of reporting the specifics and, and kind of trying to, to stitch together narratives of, of people's journeys into Europe and across Europe, um, what I thought might be useful for listeners today was that I prepared three very short little accounts that are based on um, stories of people that I met um, on on different research trips. And I thought I would read one of them now um, just to throw a few specifics and a few ideas into into the discussion that we can then then unpick yeah brilliant it won't take long <laughs> um so this is story number one she never told me her name but i met her at a warehouse in Calais. she had left her home in east africa because the government persecuted her ethnic group after crossing the sahara she paid smugglers in libya for a place in an overcrowded fishing boat that headed north across the mediterranean the boat ran out of fuel drifting for eight days before they were rescued by the Italian Navy and brought to Sicily. From Sicily, she travelled to Milan, then Paris, then Calais. There, she found a place to sleep in the occupied warehouse. Well over a hundred refugees lived there. In their home countries, they had been school teachers, cowherds, housewives, underwear salesmen, tailors, bakers, engineering students, house painters. She was a research scientist who studied ways to feed the people of her home province. Now, the refugees relied on a daily hot meal made from donated food cooked in giant pots in the courtyard. When I met her, she had been at the warehouse for a month, trying to find a way to enter the UK undetected. She said she wasn't strong enough to chase after the lorries on the motorway like some of the young men did, and access to the lorry parks was controlled by gangs who demanded money or sex. The warehouse gave her safety, but the police kept threatening to shut it down in a dawn raid. While some of the inhabitants kept watch on the roof, others held political meetings and taught each other languages. I asked her why it was so important to get to the UK. I'm 40 years old, she said. I speak English, not French. I
0: can't start my ABCs again if I want to do a PhD. So, um, the situation in Calais has worsened, hasn't it, over the course of the past couple of years? Um, yes, well, Calais has for a
1: long time, more than a decade, been a destination for uh, refugees crossing continental Europe who want to enter the UK for obvious obvious reasons. It's the closest port to to Britain um, and a huge volume of um, lorry traffic goes through that port. So that means it's um, relatively easy to find ways to, to hide yourself on the vehicles. Um, what's happened... There in the last couple of years is that no, the number of people coming to Calais has risen uh, because the number of refugees coming to Europe has risen. So really, and I hope that that you, the story I read out gave some indication of that is that you can't understand what's happening in Calais if you don't start asking questions about what's happening in Europe overall. Now, the woman that I based that story on had taken a very typical journey whereby she'd she'd been one of the I think hundred and seventy, hundred and eighty thousand 180,000 people who, who were rescued by the Italian Navy in the Mediterranean last year um, on boats that had left the coast of Libya. Um, the fact that she's ended up in Calais immediately tells us that something isn't working in in the European Union's own asylum system because the, the European Union's asylum system is, um, you know, there's a treaty called the Dublin Treaty which is intended to... Make sure that refugees claim asylum in the first country they set foot in, in the European Union. So, for anybody who had been rescued by the Italian Navy, according to that system, they should have been claiming asylum in Italy. The fact that she and many, many others have left and gone to Calais, and as we hinted at much earlier in the programme, it's not only Calais and Britain they were trying to get to, you know, larger numbers of people have gone on to Germany, Sweden, Denmark, and wherever else, um, you know, tells us that that system has already broken down. Um I think the reasons why it's breaking down also reveal quite a lot about uh, perhaps the the true nature of the european i would uh, european Union I would say mm-hmm. so um you know i think if you've if you've grown up in Britain and you've got a British passport and have you know gone on a few easy jet holidays to to Europe, you're very used to this idea that it's a sort of free and easy zone in which everybody can travel around and everybody has sort of equal access to that. Um, But that clearly isn't the case when it comes to refugees. Um, But it's also the case that, you know, this idea that refugees should claim asylum in the first countries they set foot in massively disadvantages those countries on the southern and eastern peripheries of the European Union, which are also the less wealthy countries. So you've had this phenomenon in recent years where now Italy, but before it Greece, also Bulgaria, also um, the countries that border Ukraine to a certain extent have had, um, you know, often quite sudden influxes of refugees. Um, in, at the end of 2013, f- around 15,000 Kurdish Syrian refugees arrived in Bulgaria within the space of a few months. The year previously, Bulgaria had had 170 applications for asylum. <laughs> then it had 15,000. Um, and under the current system, they're supposed to deal with that all by themselves yeah. or with minimal support from the EU. And when they are unable to deal with it, as Greece was in recent years or Italy now, is you have pressure put on those countries from the richer parts of the EU who start saying to those countries, well, oh, hey, well, we don't want you, you know, get control of your borders. We, we know that all these migrants are actually trying to come to northwestern Europe and it's up to you to stop them. So, you know, rather than the EU being this kind of level zone of free movement, actually, what it is, is a think of it more as a sort of system of zoned areas like like the tube map where mm-hmm. you have, you know, zone one, zone two, zone three. And, um, you know, the northwest of the continent is the kind of inner zone, sort of inner citadel. Mm. Um, and then you have these countries around the southern and eastern edges of the EU that, that are being used to act as buffer zones to stop migrants, um, unwanted migrants from outside of Europe, reaching the northwest of Europe. And then you have a kind of third zone on the outer edge of the EU, which are the countries that are not in the EU, but border it. So that's Ukraine, um, Turkey, Morocco, also Libya before the fall of Gaddafi, where through various um, treaties and other agreements, they're being sort of drafted into actors as as the EU's policemen. So uh, I visited Ukraine last summer, the west of Ukraine, and um, where it borders Slovakia and Hungary and Poland. And what I found there is that there's a, there's a network of detention centres in Ukraine that have all been partially funded by the EU. So you walk inside and they've got a European Union logo, you know, just by the door as you go in. And they're the result of, a, of an agreement between Ukraine and the European Union that says, well, we'll let Ukrainian citizens travel more freely within the EU as long as you agree to take back undocumented migrants that we find on our borders and detain them and process them and and do what you want. Um, The problem the European Union has had is that these countries uh, often don't have the prison systems that meet even the minimum European human rights standards. So then what you have is that the European Union has to then give money to Ukraine or other countries to build special prisons that Mm. are just, just enough, you know, meet the standards just enough so that it doesn't cause a, a major scandal with uh, all the
0: big NGOs
1: getting worked up about it.
0: So it's it's in that sense I suppose impossible to, to read the stuff that goes on at, at the UK border, um, at Dover, at Calais um, without tracing back that, that sort of causal chain um, which which ends up in conflict zones of course mm. um, but uh, I, I wonder about the, these these, these things along the way because I mean as as you say and I think quite rightly um, it's it's often very hard for a you know a passport holder to actually understand the the difficulties of these transitions and the, the story you read there had um, reference to sort of gangs which control uh, the in and out so there there is um, I think this entire sort of black economy right um, in terms of uh, transportation um, but there's also you know. Uh, Border police. Uh, and I wonder, um, and I, 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 su- I suspect you will know more about this than me, um, it, it, because this, this is one area where there is European cooperation, right, in, in terms of sort of uh, Eugent Four and Frontex and you know, all these sort of various operations, Um or they become sort of political footballs, especially in the case of something like Murray Nostrum mm. uh, and its sort of uh, putative replacements, where you have, uh, there's a large scandal here, um, of refusing to fund in any way sort of humanitarian operations um, because they, they have a, a what is it, rather euphemistically a called factor. a pool factor. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I wonder in terms of so there's a there's obvious relations, as you, as you say, between sort of uh, uh, security and uh, uh, the you know, prison systems um, uh, in terms of, of where funding goes. But it, it, it doesn't seem to go much beyond that, does it? No, um, I think there's two issues that arise from
1: that, that it would be useful to separate out a bit. Um, so I will try and do that. Um <laughs> The first one is this idea of, you know, what is what, what's been nicknamed Fortress Europe, which I think is what you were getting that yeah. there. refer, you know, Frontex is the European Union's border agency. So that's separate from, you know, each each nation state within the European Union has its own border agency, or as it's now called in Britain, border force. Um, as um, anyone who's been through a UK port recently will be excessively reminded, Um Whereas Frontex is, you know, it's funded from the EU budget, and its role is supposed to be to coordinate the the different national border forces, and to provide extra funding and resources to to help um, patrol the external borders of the European Union. Um, you know, it's based it's based in Warsaw. It's got this kind of central hub where it's got this this sort of Bond villain esque um operations center with tv screens that beam in foot surveillance footage from you know Spanish Morocco the Greek border all around all, all to one place if you go on its website it's it's um you know its, it's rhetoric is steeped in in the language of kind of uh, militarized control it has glossy bro- pdf brochures for download that show its trying out new drone technology and um you know and all, all, all that goes with that um and the image of fortress Europe has been very useful for people who want to want to oppose that system and oppose border controls as well i mean i think um you referred to the british government having this position that, that, that Britain, you know that essentially we should we should let um migrant boats sink in the mediterranean pour encourager <laughs> les autres to you know um even though that i mean there, there has, there's there's large amounts of research that just shows that to be complete mm-hmm. rubbish but um I was struck by a cartoon in the Guardian that appeared the week this was in the news, which literally, you know, it was on this idea of Fortress Europe and letting people drown. It was literally a, you know, a drawing of of a, a castle wall with a boat sinking in the moat outside it. And it it's a useful image because it, it kind of is an easy way to sum up the harshness of border policies. But I wonder if it also serves power as well because it gives the impression that there is a fortress around the edges of the European Union and that it is possible to control borders in, in, in this way that they can be, you know, that walls can be built and, and people can be filtered mm-hmm. exactly according to whatever the demands of of government policy dictates. Um, but I, I think there's a large element of smoke and mirrors to it. So, for example um both Greece, both Greece and Bulgaria, in response to increased numbers of Syrian refugees coming from Turkey, have um you know with great fanfare in the last few years built fences along parts of their land borders with Turkey um with um, financial and logistical support from the European Union. Um, and, you know, journalists are invited down to write stories about them. Um, to take the Greek example, Greece's land border with Turkey is is, is about 200 kilometres long, and most of it is formed by, by the River Evros. Um, and that was a major um, route of undocumented migration into the European Union for, for about five or six years leading up to 2012. Um, the fence is of those 200 kilometers the fence actually only covers about 12 uh and you know yeah that's the thing that's got all the attention Mm. there and when journalists are invited down they're always told well you can photograph it but you must stand side on so they take photos with the fence stretching off into the you know the the the, towards the vanishing point of the picture so it looks like this you know huge mighty operation Mm. and it isn't really Um, which sort of Raises a question well what what is happening? you know why, for example, are so many thousands of people drowning in the Mediterranean? Does that mean because there isn't a board, you know there isn't a physical you know a fence or a wall or a fortress there Does that mean what 's happening is nothing to do with us and nothing to do with the European Union or not and i think um I think it is to do with us, but I think a lot of the time what 's happening is that um the way in which you know, it's kind of our our governments are stuck in this dynamic where they promise control. Um, The control appears not to be working, so they promise even stricter controls, and that's led to two things. I think it's led to the sort of um, institutionalisation of this um, kind of all against all struggle at certain parts of the border, the Mediterranean being the biggest one. It's, you know, it's, it's everybody for themselves. It's, a, it's almost this kind of Darwinian survival of the fit. It's reduced people to that level um, precisely because they don't want to be seen to be soft or to be encouraging people to come in. Um, and the other thing that it's led to is the kind of um, detachment of the border from the physical frontiers of a of a state or of the european union um now that's something that for example you know that's not particularly new that's something that etienne balabar was writing about in the 90s i think that as um you know as globalization progresses and capital becomes more mobile and um people migrate because of these processes um states will try and reinforce their borders by essentially expanding the border so it It covers everything, Mm. you know, it's not, you know, it's not just at the edges, it's in the cities, it it intrudes into people's lived existences, their daily lives. Um, And that's certainly something that comes out in the stories of the refugees that I, you know, because the way that I work is I'll I'll sort of pick a place to go to and and try and work out what's happening there. Um, Say Calais, for example, but then I'll, I'll keep in touch with people over a period of months or more to see where they end up. And then, you know, someone I may have met in Bulgaria will send me a message on Facebook several months later and say, oh, I'm in Sweden. And and then I'll say, well, how did you get there? I mean, this Mm. just on a personal level, that's kind of what fascinates me about these stories, because I wouldn't know how to get from one end of the continent to the other with two euros in my pocket and and no passport and, you know, the rest of it. but what I think these stories and the journeys have have sort of revealed to me, at least, is the way in which for for refugees and for for migrants who come to Europe without documents, the, for them the border is everywhere. You know, they've got to cross the frontier, but they're still in a they're still in a border zone. Mm. What's happening in Calais, um, you know, it's it's thousands of miles from the edges of the EU, but it's the particular policies that are being enacted there are keeping them in this kind of grey area where they're not quite part of the the normal legal mm. system. I mean, what happens in Calais, people are destitute in Calais because the local policy is of non-encouragement, as they call it, which is that they don't let aid agencies set up inside town because that might encourage more people to come. So they, um, that effectively ensures that people are living on the street. When people f- build encampments or squat buildings, the police are very active in knocking them down. There's even an anonymous hotline that Calais residents can call to, to shop a squat, you know, so that if, you, if there's one in your neighbourhood, you can call anonymously and the police will come and kick <laughs> the migrants out. Um. And that's just a very visible example mm-hmm. of something that's that, that's underway across the continent. I think.
0: Yeah, this uh, it's. I mean, this obviously connects with uh, what you were saying earlier in the show about the the uh, the border regime is effectively a, a a kind of removal of the ability to participate in political or civic life. Um, I mean, this is a, a matter of sort of um, uh, the the. The legal status of of the refugee or of the um, you know and and in fact the i mean i suppose it's it 's good to say that that um, the the uh, the status of refugee and the legal categories involved there emerge basically after you know concerns about stateless persons um, in in the course of the twentieth century and after um, two the 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 two world wars. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I, I guess we can come on to talk a bit about the emergence of that and and and, and what that that means. Um, but but I suppose it's it's one of those things that um, that frustrates me when 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 reading a lot of theory on similar things is precisely its disconnection uh, with these with stories like the ones uh, that, that you gather and report on. Um, is, is, it's very easy to talk purely in legal categories, um, rather than, I think, address directly uh, some of the, <laughs> the fact that these are real people, um, mm. with you know, and, in highly complex and changing situations. Mm. Um, so, um, perhaps this would be a good opportunity to hear another one of those.
1: Why not? <laughs> okay, this is story number two. It was Mohammed's first time in Sofia, but he kept seeing familiar faces. A neighbour from back home stopped us and said, I heard about you being kidnapped by ISIS and I thought you were dead. In Bulgaria, thousands of Syrians were living off their life savings as they waited for new identity documents to arrive. Most wanted to travel to Germany or Sweden. Many, like Mohammed, were glued to their phones. Facebook, Viber, Skype, WhatsApp and cheap mobile internet uh, deals were keeping networks of family and friends together, even though they had been scattered thousands of miles apart. That evening, we went to visit two Syrian men who rented a 14th floor flat behind the central train station. When we arrived, they were hunched over the kitchen table, peering into a smartphone. They were playing with Azar, a web app that randomly connects you for video chats with other users. When you're bored of one, you swipe the screen left and it connects you to another. The friends were flirting and joking in broken English with people from all over the world. Ecuador, South Korea, Kentucky, USA. Three teenage girls in Ukraine appeared and they teased the young men, holding their hands over the camera to block their view. I love you, bye bye, said Mohammed. He swiped the screen and the friends heard a familiar accent. Suriye, shouted Mohammed, Syria in Arabic. But the location on the phone said Germany. The Syrian man in Germany said that he knew of a smuggler in Sofia who c- could get you there for 1,300 euros. The mood in the kitchen became serious as the friends asked for more details. Then Mohammed swiped left again and the Ukrainian girls were back. They laughed, and the two groups blew kisses at one another.
0: So really sort of um, a lot at work in that story, I think. Mm. Um, and in particular, what, what strikes me is, you know, this is a very different environment to even sort of a couple of decades ago, where you, you have the, the rise of sort of um, really instant... Uh, communication that 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 is you know that can be guaranteed um across borders you know so if i you know, if i were to travel with my uh mobile phone you know wherever i would still be able to 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 reach quite easily um you know, people here the situation is not exactly the same but certainly those networks um mean that the experience is qualitatively different now um yes i think so i mean
1: yeah that's something that struck me that if you think back to You know, the last great wave of displacement in Europe, which was after 1945, um, you know, it would take people years in some cases to find out if relatives that they had lost touch with were, you know, close relatives were were even alive or dead, let alone where they had ended up. Um, Whereas now that information can be transferred in in very short amounts of time. I mean, I think... um, I was, um, yeah. I mean, it reminds me of just just one encounter I had where I, when I was in Sicily, a, a port where where the Italian Navy rescue boats were were docking um, with with groups of migrants that they had had picked up in the Mediterranean. There was a, a couple of Syrian men who had literally just walked off the boat and asked to borrow my phone so that they could ring back home and say, well, "Yeah, we've arrived. We were lost at sea for fifteen days, but we're but we're fine now." Um, now, obviously that. Has you know some some fairly straightforward practical implica- implications, and that you know this this, um, this phenomenon of, of of these thousands of Kurdish Syrian refugees who all came to Bulgaria in a very short space of time in, at the end of two thousand and thirteen really shows how the, the kind of difference this makes. I think in that um, so the, these um, people that I met in Sofia were part of this group and clearly obviously the the you know their encounter with this man in germany was random because they were they were playing a game but there are other ways, you know mm. that it just shows how easy it is to just transfer practical information about well uh what smuggler routes to take how to travel where to go where to avoid the rest of it um but i think it's i think it's bigger than that i think it also you know the fact that you were still in touch i don't know like this one family i knew it was there there was a Five members of an in- immediate family, but maybe ten to twenty of their cousins, who were all from the same town um, in in the Kurdish province of of, of Syria, um, and they were all in different cities in Bulgaria. But there was still a sense that they were all doing it together, you know, even though they were hundreds or more miles apart. Um, and I think it it allows people to kind of um, to maintain collective identities, which are a real strength in dealing with a a kind of hierarchical system that is trying to break you up and keep you separate. Um, Kurdish refugees, I think, are uh, slightly anomalous in that I think for for reasons of history, Kurdish identity is already already partly based on being a diaspora and keeping a a kind of national diaspora identity quite strong. And you could really see how that, you know, they were much more able to pressure and negotiate with for example the bulgarian authorities to get things that they wanted to say this camp is not good enough Mm. um we need better conditions and they could do that as a group because there was already a existing sense of collective identity there whereas other people that i met in similar camps you know african men who had generally arrived alone or in groups of twos and threes were sort of locked up in a room with bars on the windows and nobody listened to what they wanted and they were very much shut out of of that but um but the 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 kind of um, communication networks give the potential for new sort of co- collective expressions to be formed. Um, that was really going on in Calais, I think. You know that. Um, I think in that first story that I read out, I, I made a reference to that warehouse being being used for political meetings. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was something. I mean, that's something I didn't know was going on, and was very surprised to see um, when I was there. So this this particular warehouse, it was something that had been squatted by no borders activists, who had, you know, they they were acting in solidarity with the refugees, but acting on their own initiative. So they went and claimed this space, set it up, defended it from the police. Um, but what happened next was that the refugees came in and used it for all the various practical things you need to do to just you know keep alive and keep warm and keep safe. But they were also holding um, political meetings every few nights where it wasn't just... So they, they, this... Um, This warehouse had refugees who were mainly from Sudan, but there were Sudanese refugees and others visiting them from other parts of Europe. I was there when there was a meeting where refugee activists came from Hamburg in Germany to tell them about how they had squatted buildings in Hamburg and forced the city council to allow them to stay in the city and not deport them all back to Italy, which is where they were supposed to be under Europe's asylum system. And that these activists had come to Calais and were telling people this is how you build that campaign this is how you can think about doing it there um, and they were on a tour where they they were there they then listed about 15 other destinations around Europe where they were going and I think the fact that people can so easily communicate with one another um, and set up these things has got a political potential that is um, maybe only just you know in its in its early stages I mean there there are many 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 challenges to all of that in that um you know people are not there to stay there and organize politically they all want to get somewhere else yeah. um you know that there, there's it it works much better when people have all got a common language and an identity um and the rest of it but I think that's actually one of the reasons why, say, the police in Calais are so assiduous about mm. demolishing these, these, these spaces that people carve out for themselves. Because they know that as soon as you're claiming space, you're also claiming a sort of right to the city and a right to political participation. And that's, good, as we were saying earlier, that's precisely the things that these systems of detention and deportation are designed to break up.
0: The, um Yes, in this, this, those, those two things, the sort of right to the city and, and the rights to political participation. Strikes me that these are, are the sort of uh, uh, the issues that are that are or would be at the centre of sort of theoretical work about this, you would think. <laughs> um and I I was you know, I was for the you know, intermittently looking up or trying to read sort of theoretical work around borders and around sort of refugees and refugee camps in, in particular, uh, asylum systems. And there are, You know, a couple of uh, a couple of you know the the, the standard go to is um, is Agamben um, in the various sort of um, uh, books. The the most prominent of what, of which is uh, Homo Sacer, um, which is uh, you know sort of work on 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 when when uh, uh, life or human life becomes killable when it stands outside of the law when it is um, you know, you know uh, articulated within a framework of, of exception exceptionality and of course so this gets deployed in, in sometimes in, in in somewhat clunky ways uh, i think by, by by people who are trying to find a way to understand uh, the the problem of the border and the problem of of, of, of a wall or of a, a, a uh, a, a regime that divides um, you know, and, and controls uh, bodies as as they as they flee conflict or as they try to enter uh, you know, enter a state. Um, how useful is this theory in in, in these circumstances?
1: Um, well, Gambin's a funny one, really. Um, I've I mean, I the way around that I'm approaching this subject is that I wanted to see things first. I've just wanted to go and report and, and and amass material. And I'm only now getting to the stage where I'm I'm trying to read up and work out what it is that I've been looking at, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, but what struck me I've, at several points last year was that speaking to refugees and migrant solidarity activists in, in different countries in Europe, the word lagers kept popping up. Which is the? I mean, you know, it's 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 the German for. I think literally it means warehouse in, in in German. But I knew it from from reading Primo Levi because that's the way in which he referred to Auschwitz because that was what you know in in the German terminology. That's that's what was used at the time, and I was I was very struck by that because it was coming up in conversations with people. Who had never been to Germany and who, you know, who, who didn't speak German, so it immediately we well, thought, why, why, you know, it would be a Sri Lankan refugee in Ukraine who had never actually been inside the European Union would use the word, or, you know, an Afghan refugee in Athens, and, um, um, and you know, an activist in various places, and I was told the reason why is because this is this comes from Agamben and it comes from his theories about the state of exception and the rest of it, um, and I think there there there's useful stuff in there. So I mean from you know, I've, from my reading of Homo Sacer, I think the development of this concept of bare life is quite useful um, in understanding this kind of grey zone that people are placed into when they're in detention or, or subject to other bits of the border regime, where you are you're 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 beyond the law, but you're more subject to its dictates than mm-hmm. than ever before. You know, um, which would um, you know, that that would carry for people in detention or people, you know, reduced to destitution on mm-hmm. the streets of Calais. Um, I, I do want, I, I do wonder if it sort of approaching it via a gambit slightly overcomplicates it though, because to reach that understanding of what he was on about, you have to wade through a lot of. Stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's the word we'll use. um, It's it's diverting and interesting, certainly, but um, I'm not sure how immediately useful it is. And uh, I actually went back and read one of the things he draws on um, a lot in in, in Homo Saka, which is Hannah Arendt's chapter on refugees in in the origins of totalitarianism. Um, And she's got a few lines in there. I mean, very briefly, she's trying to... um, you know her her argument there was show is that was that the mass displacement of people after world war 1 revealed that nation states were incapable of guaranteeing uh, political and civil rights to um everybody within them um and that also the concept of human rights that originated in you know with the french and american revolutions in the 18th century was flawed because it it proclaimed the rights of man Um, or human rights, but still these rights were only guaranteed by membership of a national community. Mm. So it meant, you know, all these millions of Russians and Eastern European Jews that were displaced suddenly found themselves neither one or the other. Um, And she sums up that grey zone that they were thrown into very well, which is that if you want a good test of whether somebody has been placed beyond the pale of the law is to ask yourself, would committing a minor crime improve their situation? Um, And I think that really, you know, that follows, you know, for today's refugees who find themselves in um, conditions of detention um, in in various bits of Europe in that, um, you know, at least if they had committed a crime, they would be told here is your punishment, here is what you're entitled to and you're not. But what happens instead is that they're locked up or forced into the shadows, into the, you know, the black market economy or into homelessness or living, you know, living on the margins one way or another. And there's no... You know, the rules of the game are not even stated. Um, Perhaps I could smoothly segue into the third of the three stories here because I think this says a few things about it, actually. Story number three. At Gatwick Airport, as we boarded the plane to Athens, the corridor was lined with adverts for HSBC. They carried slogans like, in the future, even the smallest businesses will be multinational. And in the future, it will take many imports to make an export. And... In the future, there will be no markets left waiting to emerge. I had to show my passport at both ends of the flight, but nobody tried to stop me from travelling. Once in Athens, I took the bus to a prison camp on the outskirts of the city. When I arrived at the visitor's gates, I saw a dozen men waiting in line, carrying shopping bags full of biscuits, bread and toiletries for people on the inside. I gave a name to the police at the gate, and they drove me by patrol car to a section of the camp overlooked by guard towers. Men and women lived here in shipping containers, separated into clusters by high-fence pens topped with barbed wire. A policeman took us up to one of the pens, called out a name and a man approached. This man had arrived in Greece by wading through a marshy river delta where people often drown. In his home country he was a university graduate, but in Greece he sold fruit and vegetables on the street until he was arrested in a police sweep. When we met he had been in the prison camp for 18 months but had not been charged with any crime. After five minutes, the policeman decided our time was up. Throughout our conversation, the prisoner and I had stayed on opposite
0: sides of the fence. And the, that story is really very striking. I think in 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 the way that it makes clear that the border regime exists within the city uh, as well. So if you're picked up in a sweep, you know the border is not just uh, mm. is not just at the border. It's it follows you everywhere you go. Um, i guess one of the, the the perhaps the the you know to figure uh this you know the the this this the, the figure of the refugee that emerges you know from from the fifties onwards in in you know in comes from you know the stateless person after after those old wars and there is a uh you know a series of um you know actually very clear uh, rights and duties in sort of 1951 convention 67 protocol on stateless persons um on refugees uh, you know it's it, you know, despite there being arguments that there are needs of updating the 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 obligations are, are very clear and are, are easily met and yet are uh, flouted um you know uh, almost universally um so you know it, it, like one of the the perhaps way to look at it you know the way that the, this figure is conceived is is exactly in that that the slippage um that happens in right wing political discourse um, that the refugee beca- becomes the immigrant, becomes the Muslim, and that all of these are, are sort of uh, collapsed together, uh, and and all of these seem to be people that you know you will notice it happen when people talk about uh, uh, border camps or refugee camps is that is that this discourse will slip in this way. Um, I guess that the, the uh, you know to to round off the show, we could talk a little about. Um, whether the kind of political work that's being done by No Borders activists, and whether the sort of anti-racist work that's happening um, both here and uh, across Europe, is is dealing adequately with it, and whether there might be stuff that's being overlooked.
1: Yes, um, I think that slippage is is quite key. Um, the immediate thing that comes to mind are these Pegida demonstrations in Germany, where um, um, the rhetoric just slips very easily between it being about Muslims or being about refugees, about being about immigrants. Um, The other thing to note is that while we've referred to refugees throughout this program, um, none of the people whose examples I brought up in those stories would meet, I think the legal definition for refugees at the point Mm. that I encountered them in that they, they were already in safe countries and trying to move on to other countries. Um, Now, I think what that tells us is that um, we have to think beyond those kind of legal categories because, you know, it was probably true a hundred years ago, but I think it's even more true now. People are not going to just stop moving because they've been handed some food and, um, you know, some shelter in that the refugees come to Europe or move other places because they want to live and you know, they want to participate in social life. Um And I've had conversations with tons of people about this, tons of refugees who, who just, they come to Europe, they don't see why they should stay in one country or another. They see other Europeans moving around, going to wherever they feel will be, you know, most beneficial for them to live or to work or to have families or to, you know, do whatever they want, really. Um, and... I suppose in terms of coming back to the the work that's being done, I think that that is recognised. I mean, I think those No Borders campaigns in Calais, for example, um, you know, they show a realisation that that, that space, political space, is as important as just ensuring that people's basic bodily needs are cared for. Um, I suppose the other aspect of it that we haven't really talked about the, the but but it's just worth throwing up at you know at the end <laughs> is um the the idea of open borders and what that means mm. in that you know the European Union is a limited kind of open borders project and it has some really severe failings as we've you know discussed throughout this program um there's huge political pressure to withdraw from that now, you know, and it 's being presented to someone like Nigel farage I think is you know he presents it as well, oh, this is the safe thing to do is regain control of our mm-hmm. national borders and then we can treat people humanely again. Um, I think that's completely wrong. I think what we have to do is talk about open borders um in in while acknowledging that the border is more than what happens at the frontier, and that you need to be talking about solidarity as well.
0: Yes the two things there that I think are useful to take from from that sh- from from the show generally um is is both that, that that matter of safety that we never build a safe solution or we will never you know be able to deal with this adequately um until we find a political rather than security solution um to the problem and that political solution will I think be exactly that. it will have to be that. It will have to be the extension of open borders beyond, uh, beyond the European. Um, Dan Trilling, thank you very much. Um, thank you. We will see you sa- same time, same place next week.